Today's guest is Dave Lazier. Dave has nearly 30 years of experience in food distribution, mainly focused on food service. Up until now, our guests have been involved in the manufacturing of food in disciplines like food science, R&D, quality assurance, and management. Food distribution takes these products the food manufacturers produce and gets it into the hands of the people who use those products. This is an area of the food industry that I have very little experience with. And Dave does a great job of breaking it down and making it not only easy to understand, but also shows how vital it is. Hi, Dave. Welcome today. We're really interested to talk to you. And you actually work in an area that I have very little experience in. So I'm anxious to hear all about uh, food distribution, some of the uh, things that you've done in your career. Now, I usually start by asking people, did you get into the food business on purpose? Or was it an accident? Well, that's a great question. And thank you. First of all, thank you for inviting me here today. I'm really excited to be here and speaking to you about an industry that I'm very passionate about. And um, it's interesting when I've listened to some of your other podcasts and your guests have talked about how much they love the food industry. And I get that same level of passion from you when you talk about it. And it's 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 interesting that most people in this industry do have a a love for it and a passion for it uh, because there is something exciting and it's fun and it's something that everybody can relate to. You know, yeah. every, every, every person in this country can relate to food. Yeah. Whereas sometimes when you talk to people that are in the thermonuclear industry, uh, it's sometimes difficult to relate to that because I don't even know what thermonuclear is. I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's what's, I think, kind of fun and sexy about the food business is because uh, people always want to know about it and want to know you know how it's made, where it comes from, and this chef and this restaurant and, you know, where should I go? Where should I not go? Things like that. So, um, so interestingly enough, um, when I was in high school and college, most of my friends worked in the food industry as servers. Okay. You know, they worked in, in restaurants, um, one as a manager, other as servers. And, um, and I really kind of went all through high school and college Really not in the food industry. Now, I did flip burgers at Wendy's in high school. Okay. And as uh, most people know, that that's what uh, the, the burnt burgers is what makes the chili the next day. And as what my friends will tell you, that they're still using the chili, <laughs> the, the burnt hamburgers that I had from 1989. That's how many burgers that I burnt. Oh, boy. As the I didn't cook. know they did that. that. Well, again... I don't want to get in trouble with Wendy's, but this was in 19... No, I actually... 1995, in 1985, they would use the burgers that were burnt on the grill. That would be going to the chili for the but next day. But that's not a bad thing. That's like, no, they're not wasteful. Sustainability, no yeah. doubt about it. So, yes. Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, if it's really charcoal, I guess I, I made that more without. accidental chili than I actually did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Intentional uh, burgers. So, wow. yes. I have to remember that next time we burn burgers, just put that's in right. chili. Put in the chili. That's right. That's really good. So, so other than working at Chili's, um, I pretty much went through, um, you know, high school and college, not in the food industry. And then when I um, graduated from college and was looking for a job, um, I kind of... Um, a friend of a friend of the family of a friend was in a business um, that I think is no longer a business. The name of the company was American Frozen Foods. Okay. 
And this individual was the a manager who had just opened this Pittsburgh branch. Didn't hire any salespeople yet and hired a few people um, in telemarketing, but uh, I was the first salesperson. And, and this was the business model of American Frozen Foods is, again, you have to remember this was pre-internet. So this was, okay. uh, you know, early 90s is um, what they would do is um, they, you would get a phone call to your house and they would say, hey, would you be interested in a six-month supply of frozen food delivered right to your door. I said, well, you know, I'm not sure about it. Said, Listen, we'll have one of our representatives come out, no obligation. Um, and they would ask a few questions, like number one, kind of do you have a credit card to know that they have some credit? Do you have a freezer or do you not have a freezer? And then that's all, basically that's the only information that I would be equipped with. So, hey, here's your lead. You have a call with the the Mossman family in uh, in uh, in Butler, and uh, they have uh, there's two adults and two children there, and they do not have a freezer, and that would be about all the information that I would have. So I would go into their home, and I would talk about um, kind of the supply chain formula on where the where the cattle came from, how the product is procured and then go through a process of telling them how we would be able to provide them with six months worth of food delivered right to their freezer at their home. Um, and it would last for six months. And I would go through a process of how many times a week do you eat steak? How many times a week do you eat burgers? How many times do you eat this? And then I would come up with a, a formula and then that formula would provide, would spit out and say, okay, your cost is X amount of dollars a week. And they would say, that sounds great, but I don't have a freezer said, okay, well, let me walk you through the benefits of owning a freezer. And I would take, if you took all of your bread <laughs> that you didn't use and you threw in the freezer for a day, could you save a dollar a week? Probably. If you bought in bulk and could put things in your freezer, could you save a dollar? So you'd go through a formula and they'd say, yes, yes, yes. And then they say, well, how much more is the freezer going to cost me? And you say, well, that's the beauty of the program. The cost I gave you includes the cost of a freezer. And they would be like, wow, that's impressive. And so um, uh, the challenge was, is that you'd really have to close them on that call. If they had time to think about it or think it over, they would pretty much convince, them, convince themselves out that they really needed it. However, there were people that, you know, would say, yeah, that sounds great. And so I would sell, you know, they would buy a freezer and they would buy six months worth of food. And at that point, kind of, I was pretty much done. And then company would take over from there and they would get their delivery. And every six months they would get a phone call and would you, do you want to renew? Do you want to renew? And, you know, they had um, a decent amount of retention business. Um, I think that once consumers started recognizing the actual cost of the food, that that's when they would say, mm, I'm not sure this is for me. They looked at it as, okay, I'm already spending X amount of dollars per week on my grocery bill. And this is all, I'm, I'm going to kind of assess this amount for this part of the grocery. But they realized, you know what? I actually don't eat that many steaks. I don't eat very, I don't eat this much meat. Um, so it sounds good, you know, when they first do it. But I think after maybe one or two rounds, they say, no. So I did that for a while, but that was really my entrance into the food industry. Um, I did that for a period of time, and uh, and then I can't remember how long I was there. And then, believe it or not, I had a friend who said, hey, I'm actually working in a restaurant 
waiting tables and I'm making more money than I can do working in an office. So actually I waited tables for, for a period of time. And then, uh, shortly after that, I actually got a a real job selling advertising and in advertising, I actually did have a couple of customers in the restaurant business. And, um, and soon after that, I was looking for a job that I could make some decent money. I wasn't making a lot of money selling advertising. And, uh, I saw an ad in the paper for Cisco food service. Now this is showing my age back then. It was actually in the newspaper. In the newspaper mm-hmm. Yes. Now, when I was, I went to school at the university of Maryland and my, um, my last year at school, I, um, I lived in my fraternity house okay. and, um, and we actually had a distribution company that would deliver food to the fraternity house and wow. it was Cisco. And, um, so I would see Cisco's truck around town, around mm-hmm. the neighborhood. When I had left for school, again, we didn't, I didn't know anything about Cisco. I'd never heard of them, mm-hmm. but I knew them because they delivered food to the fraternity. I'd see it, you know, around school, delivering to places around campus. So I saw the ad and I'm thinking, hey, I know this company. I know what they do. Yeah. So I responded to the ad. And so I got a, a phone call shortly thereafter and said, hey, why don't you come out for an interview out in Harmony, Pennsylvania, um, not too far from here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went out for the interview and um, I still remember going to the first interview and um, asking me questions that I just really wasn't prepared for. You know, this was my first big time interview with a big time company. And why'd you leave this company? Why'd you leave? Why'd you do this? And why'd you do that? And why'd you leave this frozen food company? And I was caught kind of flat footed and uh, said in the interviewer said, well, I'm not hiring, but maybe there's somebody else in the office that needs a salesperson. I'm thinking, well, I'm not working here. I guess this is over. And they said, well, there's one other guy that will speak with you. So at this point, I had, I had like all the pressure was off because I had said, I'm not getting this job. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed for the second person and I was super relaxed and super comfortable and just was very kind of open and honest and just kind of let my personality come out and ask me a few questions about food that I didn't know much about. Uh, for example, I, I still remember saying, do you know what 1620 means when it comes to shrimp? And I said, no, I have no idea. <laughs> now, do you know what 1620 means? Isn't that the size yes, of them? 16 yeah. to 20 per pound. That's yeah. correct. That's the big one. Yeah. So um, asked me a few questions and uh, I was at least did well enough to get a next interview with the vice president of sales, which I had that interview again. I was relatively relaxed on that and got an interview with the president. And I was hired in, uh, in April of 1995 as a salesperson. I went through training and they said, well, we need you, to, everybody else in your class is going to go out and get a territory, except for you. Really? <laughs> yeah. They said, we want you to be kind of an assistant salesperson. So we're going to have you, we're going to sign you with the number one sales guy. Okay. Um, and we're going to have you work with him because this way you'll learn the business and he needs help. Okay. Now it's funny because at the time, the number one salesperson in this market was selling usually, um, they usually determine, uh, they usually weekly sales is, is something that's a barometer for okay. salespeople. And I remember at the time he was selling about $50,000 a week in, in food to his customers. Okay. And, uh, and he was the top guy. And uh, now I think if you'd went over to most Cisco's, that would be probably more the bottom person. Right. You know, you know, think about probably it. Probably just here. add a zero at the end. <laughs> it would be for the top person. 
So, uh, but he had great accounts. I remember um, he had the Grand Concourse over Ooh. the, you know, and so his his territory was Mount Washington. So, like the Lamont, Lamont restaurant. Um, if you remember a restaurant called the Grand View Saloon, it was up on Mount Washington. Um, so we had Mount Washington and then the South Side and Station Square. And um, so it was a really, it was a cool territory to begin in. And they were buying the high quality stuff. Yes, they were buying some high quality stuff. But we also had, you know, bars and restaurants. Mm -hmm. There was a little restaurant that had been only open for two years at that point called Fatheads. And uh, Fatheads at the time was just this very um, narrow place that, you know, didn't seat very many people. The restaurant, the the kitchen was down the basement Mm -hmm. and uh, it was... I think 130 degrees down there year round. And the driver used to have to go in with his uh, truck with a dolly, go up steps, uh, go up a couple steps, turn to dolly, go down a couple steps, turn the dolly again and go down more steps to get to the kitchen. So the driver didn't love that account. However, uh, Fatheads um, grew from that little tiny restaurant to double the size and then triple the size and has now um, opened up restaurants in um, Eastern uh, Ohio. Have a they they brew beer in Ohio. They have multiple restaurants in Ohio, and Fatheads is now a, a brand of beer that is distributed distributed all over um, at least the eastern part of the country and even into the Midwest. I mean, it's this phenomenal brand of beer, and their food is fantastic. And what started with this very small restaurant, um, and uh, so I kind of got to see it at the at the ground level when they were tiny to what they are today. But so. Southside then wasn't as what as it is now. Right. However, there were still quite a bit of restaurants on the South Side. So I really enjoyed um, kind of my first foray into the industry. You know, I had a, I had a, I had a fun territory to work in. So um, worked with that individual for about uh, six months until he moved on, actually transferred to a Cisco out West. And I took over a lot of that territory. So I had the territory in the South side. So I just had a lot of fun. That's good. Are you originally from Pittsburgh? I am. I grew up in Squirrel Hill. Oh, okay. And so So you knew all these restaurants. I knew a lot of the restaurants. Yeah. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, went to, as I said, University of Maryland, then moved back here. Now, Cisco um, basically came into Western Pennsylvania uh, around 1990, 1991, somewhere in that time frame, 1989. So really, when I left for college, Cisco wasn't here. So uh-huh. they had built that facility while I was at school. And so when I was driving out 79, I'm like, wow, that building wasn't here. Because you know, I remember uh, even driving, I had a friend of mine who had a um, lake house in Conneaut. So we okay. would travel up on Route 79. I'm like, that wasn't here <laughs> before I left. So what, but what, uh, what Cisco did, their, their plan um, originally, um, when I started in 1995, they were just celebrating their 25th anniversary. And, um, you know, just and then a few years ago, they celebrated their 50th anniversary. Um, what they would do at the time is, is Cisco would, would purchase a distributor in the market and then take on that distributor name to get some recognition in the marketplace. So, for example... In Baltimore, the distributor there was Smelkinson Foods. So there was so in Baltimore it was Cisco Smelkinson or Smelkinson Cisco. And okay. in this market, they bought a meat company called Dector Meats. So the um, 
So the company here in Western Pennsylvania was called Dector Cisco. And they did that for several years until they finally changed the name and everybody became Cisco Food Service of a particular city. So we were Cisco Foods of Pittsburgh. It kind of coordinated. Remember when... Um, you remember when the proliferation of cell phones and we were no longer all 412 oh, yeah. and we became, we, they entered 724. Mm -hmm. So right around the time they had 724 is when they became Cisco Foods of Pittsburgh. So, so, um, so, so I worked there uh, at Cisco from uh, 1995. And then a few years after that was promoted district, district sales manager. And I had uh, salespeople working for me. My territory at that time was the North Hills. So again, lots of fun, lots of growth in the North Hills because that was right around the time that they had built 279. Yeah. So you saw the growth in, in, the, in the North Hills. So I was part of that uh, excitement of that growth and new restaurants. And um, so that was a fun territory. And then um, spent some time in business development and then spent some time in business resources. And what business resources the foundation of that role was that um, really uh, to find vehicles in which to add value to the distribution process. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. If you look at Cisco is considered as a broadline distributor. And what I mean by broadline is that if you walk into a restaurant, basically everything you see in that restaurant, they sell. And everything you eat. And everything you eat. They sell, they sell all the food, the silverware, the napkins, the placemat, the glasses, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the drink that goes in the glasses, mm -hmm. you know, everything. everything. And so they are a broad line and they, they sell everything versus more specialty companies. And we'll mm -hmm. kind of talk into, we'll, we'll speak more about specialty companies here in a few minutes. Um, what's interesting about distribution, though, is that look at Cisco or U.S. Food Service or Performance Food Group, Gordon Food Service, Shamrock Foods, Cheney Brothers, Benny Keith. These are all companies in the top 10. Even in Erie, there's a company called Curtsy. That's a very big. Um, they have a, a sister business called Northern Hazarot that's all through the Midwest. These are all you know large food service distribu distributors. Most of them, if not all of them, don't make anything. Okay. So there's no manufacturing. Right. They are simply a distributor. Right. So they are the conduit between a manufacturer and the customer. And predominantly, they're selling a lot or distributing a lot of the same food. Mm -hmm. So really, I think many people look at distribution as commoditized because it's I can purchase from this company or purchase from this company. It's the same companies, mm -hmm. a lot of the same products. So what differentiates the two? So back then, what was um, a movement is how can distributors find tools to help restaurants become more profitable or more efficient? So, and I'll and I'll get into that in a little more detail. So, most food service distribution companies have, will have kind of two different units. One is um, more of the kind of multi-unit side. So, um, for example. One of the Cisco's largest customers, Aramark. Aramark is the company that, that, that does all the food service for all the um, arenas here in Pittsburgh. Okay. They do um, AcroShore and they do uh, PNC Park and they also do um, hockey. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it right now off the top of my head. It's 
it's a shame, but <laughs> <laughs> they do all of these. So they do all the food service and Aramart does a lot of schools in the area, mm-hmm. nationwide company. Cisco's a partner for them. So that's handled on the multi-unit side. I worked on the street side. So I was dealing predominantly with mom and pops, Okay, you know, independent owners, mm-hmm. maybe a small chain of two or three restaurants, sometimes four restaurants. Um, and the difference between kind of independent restaurants versus multi-unit restaurants, even the chains out there, you know, is, you know, multi-unit restaurants or operations, contract management companies like mm-hmm. an Aramark, a Sodexo, a Compass, they're able to contract, you know, their food uh, at, a, at a great price and even have relationships with the manufacturers where mom and pops, mom and pops don't have that same type of leverage right. or buying power. Mm-hmm. And so um, where where independent operators, things that they struggle with is, um, you know, labor is a big element right now. So how oh, are yes. they, and, and so how will they procure items that finds that balance between, um, value added. So okay. a value added product is an item that is further processed in some mm-hmm. way. So for example, I was look, listening to your podcast with Brian about the pizza business Yes, and he made this reference to dough balls. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's interesting about the pizza industry. If you look at kind of the raw goods, so if if you have a um, a pizza place that's making food from scratch, mm-hmm. you know they're buying the flour, you know they're buying the yeast, um, you know they got the gigantic mixer that's mm-hmm. been in the basement for four hundred years yes. that still works, and they're making dough themselves. Well, now you can go. Well, I have one way in which I can value add that one, and I'll make dough balls. So we'll we'll prepare provide you with the dough in the form of a ball. And so you don't have to worry about the flour and the yeast. And now you just have to take that dough ball just to press it and make right. it into pizza. Then there's another level of value. And we'll, we'll take, we'll actually sell you a raw crust. And so mm-hmm. we take the, the dough press out of it. Then you take value added further and we'll sell you, we'll sell you a pre-cooked pre- uh, crust. And then there's value added. We'll sell you the whole pizza already done. Yes. Like, like Brian was doing. So, so that's an example of value added and take that, kind of across the spectrum with every item. And so one thing that a a sales representative for these distributors do is how can they provide mechanisms that make the operator more efficient but providing them with with product that might be more value added Mm -hmm. um, or it might be somebody who wants to make something from scratch. Now, if you look at mom and pops, for example, you know, what are the things that they struggle with? And let's say comparative to maybe chain restaurants, mm-hmm. chains have advertising dollars. You know, you see a lot of commercials on television, mm-hmm. they can coupon heavily or, or mom and pops may not have that. So they say, how do I get more people to eat in my restaurant? How can I drive or foot traffic? How can I get more people to come during lunch? How can I get more people to come on Tuesdays and Wednesdays? My weekends are busy. However, I need to pay my staff. I need to, I need right. to pay for that empty chair. Um, all week long. So what distributors started doing here is trying to find all of these different tools or mechanisms to outsource maybe third party. They started working with menu companies. They started working with um, third party providers to say, hey, if you buy food from me, look what I can do for you in return. I can, I can take your current menu. I can reformat it. I can make it much more profitable for you. And I can even actually find a company that can print them for you. And so that's something that food service distributors have done um, in a very robust way over the last 
you know, probably 15, 20 years is trying to find different tools in which they can make these independent operators more profitable and more effective, uh, even operationally in the way they do business um, so that they can separate themselves from the competition and not just make it more transactional. Do you ever get somebody who wants to do a restaurant, has no idea how to do it, so you take them from the beginning and help them? Great question. Yes, that does happen. Um, and so, um, and this is what's, I think, always interesting about sales in general is because um, I do quite a bit of sales training. It's something I'm very passionate about in the food service industry and even out the food service industry. And, and I think that when, when an individual decides to get into being a professional salesperson mm-hmm. in the food service industry or in the food industry, you know, they have these um, thoughts on how they're going to be consultative in nature, mm-hmm. on how they will, um, you know, partner with restaurants and show them how to do things uh, in a more effective way or even make them taste better or find products. And, they, and what happens is these sales professionals who go through this process, they get, they get trained and they, on the products and they get trained on how to sell and they go to the restaurants and the restaurants all say the same thing. Well, how much is it? What's your price on this? Mm. And what's your price on that? And how much is this going to cost me? And, and give me a price list on your top 10 items, things like that. And uh, I think sales professionals then sometimes will happen is they'll default to this lowest common denominator. And, uh, and it, it's interesting is, you know, they'll ask me, well, why do they ask for, why do they always ask for price? Why are they all asking for price? And I answer in a couple of different ways. And I say, well, they ask that because that's what we train them to do. I'm like, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I think about a caveman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think about the caveman that, um, you know, found the, the, the lion and they, and they skin the, the fur of the lion. Or, and, then, and, and the caveman walks into the, to the shop and they say, uh, hey, I want to sell you some of my lion skins and bear skins. I just got I said, sure, yeah, I'll buy them from you. And then the next sales guy who's got uh, lion skins and bear skins walks in and then he said, well, I already have that. And, and, and the salesman says, well, what are you paying for it? I'll be it by a dollar. You know, so I think that, you know, salespeople have trained customers mm-hmm. over the course of a billion years to to ask for price. Yeah. And, you know, so we're the ones who have driven that. And also, unless you provide them with a, a reason to not ask for price, what else do they know? That's all they know yeah. to ask for. They don't say, hey, well, if you could tell me how to make my business more profitable, if you can show me how to reduce my labor cost, if you can show me how to reduce my food costs, then I'll buy from you. Restaurateurs don't know to ask that. So to, to your point, Maureen, I think what happens is, is that, yes, restaurateurs will get into this business not knowing very much. Right. The first thing they do is obviously try to find a chef or a kitchen manager mm-hmm. who does know what they're doing. But what will happen is, you know, it's really the, the first salesperson that's able to, to provide them with value. And, and you can define value in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways, but a value is usually the person that's able to kind of find a way how to, to, to get that account, so to speak. Now, the one thing that I found when I got into this industry that I was fascinated with is that most independent restaurants who can buy from just one distributor, everything they need for the most part can provide them with 90% of what they need. 
Most independent operators will buy from two or even three broadline distributors. And then we'll buy from anywhere between three to four kind of these middle range specialty distributors. So you might find a restaurant that has, um, they may buy from two broadliners like a, like a Cisco and a Gordon Food Service. Mm-hmm. And then they might buy from a produce company. They might buy from a dairy company. They may have a paper and disposable company. They'll have an equipment company. They'll have a chemical company. So um, where chain restaurants don't do that. No. Multi-unit restaurants will predominantly have one main distributor that will provide them with 80% of what they need. And then they may buy their produce locally and their dairy local and maybe their bread local. However, 80% of what they buy. So the difference, what I've really assessed, the difference between how chain restaurants do it versus how independence restaurants do it. Chain restaurants don't rely upon procurement as a profit center. Mm-hmm. For independence, a lot of independent operators may not have the level of expertise on how to um, utilize their restaurant as a source of revenue. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. So what they do is, is an operator will say, the way that I can provide value to my business is I am going to shop three or four different distributors on my spreadsheet. And I'm going to get the best price. And they feel as though that if they can save their restaurant $150 to $200 a week on their purchase or $300, mm-hmm. look how much money that I'm saving the restaurant. And that's how they can provide value to their business. And so, and I look at it, how chain restaurants say, well, instead of spending my time as a general manager or a regional manager on finding the best price on ketchup this week. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do is I am going to train my staff back of the house. Back of the house is basically the kitchen. Right. Front of the house, which is the restaurant. I'm going to train my staff to become the best that they can be. So, for example, Maureen, tell me about how you would tell me how you would compare your experience. What's your experience when you go to an independent restaurant versus when you go to maybe a multi-unit chain? Tell me what your how you would differentiate between the two. Usually the tr- the chain ones are the same no matter where you go. You're going to get exactly the you know the the hamburger at Wendy's. Yes. This Wendy's is the same as that Wendy's. Right. And if you go to a, a, pasta, a pasta at Olive Garden, yeah, in Kentucky sounds yep. tastes just like the pasta at Olive yeah. Garden in California and yeah. here in Pittsburgh. But if you go to the mom and pops, then you're going to get the unique food. That's right. I agree. However, if Larry is cooking on Tuesday. Oh, yes. <laughs> it may not taste the same way that Michelle cooks it on Friday yes. at an independent. Right. You know, which is, so it's, and the one thing that I think that why, why multi-unit restaurants are so popular is because of this. It's almost like insurance. It's yes, a you know exactly security. what you're going to get. And, and if you don't get what you want, what's going to happen? Oh, well, you can complain and they'll just, they'll make it right. That's right. Make it right, meaning you'll get a free meal. Yes. You'll get a free dessert. Yes. You'll get a coupon to come back. Yes. And so you know that if you, that, that manager has been trained so well that the customer is king and whatever you want will make it right. We're independent. If you get a bad meal, you have no idea. Sometimes you can't find a manager. Yeah. If the manager just come over, they, you know, the the manager's the cook. (laughs) <laughs> right, the manager might be the cook, or the manager says, "You know, I'll get that to you." Uh, yeah, let me let me do it again. Yeah. Well, I had a weird experience with Wendy's. Yeah. In it was right towards the end of the pandemic, 
or maybe it was the height of it, but they had no lettuce. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a salad and they said, well, we have no lettuce. And I'm going, stores can't you walk across the street and go get some lettuce? Like, no, we're not allowed that. And I go, so you'd rather not sell any salads. And this didn't go on for an hour. This went on for like two or three weeks. And I thought, do you realize how much business you're losing? And they had no lettuce even for the hamburgers or anything. It's not like they were hoarding it for the hamburgers. They didn't have it for the hamburgers, or the chicken sandwiches, nothing. And I go, and I even said, do you realize that you could just come out and walk over there and buy the lettuce and come back, buy the lettuce for like a dollar and sell it to me for $4. And they like, well, we're not allowed. And the, there was another restaurant next to Wendy's, which we all know in Pittsburgh, Eaton Park. Mm-hmm. If Eaton Park runs out of anything, you will see Eaton Park employees in the grocery store buying it. They will be buying lettuce. They'll be buying like tomatoes because they ran out of tomatoes for the day. They ran out of bread. They ran out of whatever. They just walk over there and get it at the grocery store and come back. Now, and, interestingly enough, I worked for the produce company that um, sells all their produce to Eaton Park. So we okay. can get into that as, as, as the story evolves. I'm, I'm going slow here. <laughs> so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully uh, it, uh, it's interesting. The reason that Wendy's, and again, I'm only speculating here. I don't know this for a fact. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating this based on experience. The reason that Wendy's doesn't go across the street and get lettuce is because um, if somebody should get sick on that lettuce, mm-hmm. then Wendy's has to go through the process of going through a supply chain process of where did you go to get the grocery store? Where did the grocery store get the produce from? And so the reason that they don't allow their employees to do that is because they haven't vetted the supply chain and the recall procedures. So if there's a recall on that lettuce and the manager said, well, I went to the grocery store. Well, what was the brand of the lettuce? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so now you have um, a dilemma that Wendy's does not want to get itself into. Oh, I know, but that's so sad. That's just a sad commentary that that you have to think about all the legalities. It is 100% about the legalities of it. And that's why the Wendy's manager or Eaton Park... They do obviously, Eaton Park, 100% as supply chain. They know um, mm-hmm. they're very particular about where the product comes from, very focused on sustainability. I think Eaton Park's a very progressive organization mm-hmm. that um, I think that this this market, and, and Eaton Park has a sister contract management group called Parkhurst that a lot of people don't know, don't know about, but Parkhurst does a lot of the local colleges. They do uh, B&I, which is business industry, like a, like, a, like a Google, for example, or a law firm. They may utilize Parkhurst. Um, they're, they're very particular about you know, where they get their food from, how it's sourced, and the level of sustainability. They have an individual on their team who's focused on sustainability. Um, However, they have a little more flexibility because Eden Park doesn't have the same constraints as Wendy's does, yeah. uh, you know, so they, they can do those type of things. Yeah, they so need that's a bottle of ketchup. They went and it, bought their that, Heinz ketchup and they brought can, it back. They can do those things. They have a little more flexibility at Eden Park than they do at Wendy's because if something goes wrong at Wendy's, the, the ramifications there are in the billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. So that's why. A lot of people don't know why, and that's why. Oh, I knew so, why, yeah. but I said, this is silly. It is. I, I agree with you. The other element to that is that at the time, where lettuce may cost, you know, lettuce 
in the pre-pandemic, there would be times in the summertime where I would be selling a, a, a 24 head case of lettuce for $15, $18, or today maybe in their 30s. Mm-hmm. At that time, lettuce was over $100 a case. Mm-hmm. So it was not only was it hard to find, it was incredibly expensive. And some of the reasons why there's no lettuce and sometimes no tomatoes at Wendy's is because they're just too expensive. So that's another element on why they may not have that product. So, but that's just an example of why the general public has no idea. All we thought, all I thought about was, I just want a stinking salad. That's right. I agree with you. Just, I just want lettuce on the hamburger. That's right. So, um, Yes, I get it. So going back to my to my story to get to your question is that, um, you know, we're independent restaurants um, will may not have all of the level of expertise where chain restaurants. And, and, and so there's a there's a there's a term in the industry called food cost. And somebody who's economics might have, you know the term cost of goods sold. Mm-hmm. So this is something that you know many people don't know about. But. A f- the food cost target, again, this is typical um, of, a, of, a, of a, I'd say a main, main restaurant, let's say, they're shooting for about a 33% food cost. So what that means is if the product to prepare that food costs $5, mm-hmm. they're going to charge 15 for it. If it costs $10, they're going to charge 30 And if you do that, your target is about a 33% food cost. So what you buy, you multiply times three. Now there's a lot of several factors that will um, change your ability to actually determine how well I'm doing. So chain restaurants every week, sometimes every month, will count all their inventory. So they know exactly what they spend on their food, how much they bought, what they have in inventory, and then they calculate it and they say, how far off am I from my targeted food cost? So I want to be at 33, well, I'm at 38. Well, what can cause that? range. Um, the, most people think it's theft. It's actually not. It's actually um, kind of how the yield on the product and how it's working out. So for example, um, on a head of lettuce, you buy a head of lettuce at your house. Yeah. How many of those outer leaves do you take off before you right. start cutting? You may take two or three. Tomato. If you're going, now think about it, if you have a 25 pound box of tomatoes and the, the prep cook is there to, to slice the tomatoes. Well, well, this tomato's bruised. So does the line cook cut around the bruise or do they just throw the tomato in the garbage? Right. <laughs> so, so all of those factors, how much yield you're getting out of your lettuce, your tomatoes, strip loin is a good example. You know, most multi-unit restaurants will get their strip steaks already cut from the supplier or mom and pops think, well, I can cut that strip loin myself and save all that money. Right. Well, if it's a 12-ounce steak and they cut 14 ounces, mm. It costs the money. If they cut it 10 ounces and the person at the table complains because, hey, it's not as big as that guy over there who's right. got a 14-ounce steak. Well, now they have to say, well, let me get you a new steak. And they have to throw that in the garbage. So all of these factors on waste and yield and how much they're throwing in the garbage, that's the biggest impact on food costs. Now, absolutely, um, if you have a theft problem, that's going to show up on your food cost. Um, so where multi-unit operations they will do their food cost at a religious way, weekly or monthly, at the worst quarterly, where very few independent restaurants will actually take an inventory 
and do a food class. Now, that's not to say all of them. There are that are religious about it. However, most of the majority of them, at least in the ones I've interacted with around the country, don't take the time to do a food cost. And so, so, so basically, you see that, as I, I mentioned before, where operators will say, well, I just want the lowest price because they aren't kind of executing all of the mechanisms that they can to be more efficient in their business and identify the products that could be better for their, them or items. Um, too many times operators will just focus on kind of what's the price of X instead of really looking deeper to figure out what kind of value can this supplier provide me that will make me a more efficient rec- restaurant, make me more operationally sound in the back. Um, think about it this way. You go to an independent restaurant. How will a server ask if you want dessert? Did you save room? <laughs> right? Or they may not even ask you at all. They might just put the check down. Right. Where if you think about chain restaurants that are really training their staff really well, they may not even ask you if you want dessert. They may say to you, okay, what are you having for dessert today? Because we have this beautiful um, chocolate, chocolate decadent cake. We've got um, homemade apple pie and we've got this um, delicious pistachio ice cream. They don't ask you if you want dessert. They just tell you what's for dessert and then you can choose. Now, in that scenario, as Brian mentioned in his podcast with you, people buy emotionally. Oh, yes. (laughs) What's my emotional connection (laughs) once they talked about how decadent that chocolate cake is or if I can see the cake? I'm now making a much more emotional connection versus did you save room? Yeah. Or, well, yeah. I love when you go to a restaurant and they come around with yes, the absolutely. and all the desserts are on right there. Right there. like, I have to have one of those. Well, or the Cheesecake Factory. You yeah. walk in, you walk past no all the desserts. It. So now think about it. If I am able to sell, um, now if a typical dessert on a menu is you're looking at what, in between $5 to $10. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to your food cost of 33%, those desserts may cost a dollar, maybe up to $2. So they're making good margin and good profit mm-hmm. on dessert with most of the time, unless they're making homemade, it's opening the box, slicing yes. it. So there's not a lot of a labor that is incorporated into that product. If I can get my wait staff, every table to, to ask that question, what are we having for dessert? Mm-hmm. How many more desserts am I going to sell that night? If I can sell 30 more desserts on that one particular night and I can make $3 on every dessert, I just made $90 versus an independent operator who doesn't spend the time training their staff. They think to themselves, I can save that much money by beating up my suppliers and getting the best price. Mm. And so it's interesting where this unit manager at a Wendy's or an Applebee's or an Olive Garden isn't really focused. They're not, they're not thinking about what my price of my food is. That is already done from the procurement team. They, that's already been taken care of. I'm focused on running my restaurant to the most effective, efficient, profitable way that I can. And so it's interesting. I think a lot of people look at the difference between the two. And I think that's one area that a lot of folks don't think about is procurement as a profit area for independence, where I think chain, it's just, it's a means to get the products to my door so I can sell a lot of the food to my customers. I mean, Olive Gardens, you open the, open the, the manager opens the door, it turns around, there's already two hour wait, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think, you know, a lot of independents wonder, how do I replicate that? 
And, um, and it's not that it's easy. There's a lot of competition out there, but I think too often, um, I think they make it harder than it needs to be. So, um, I, and living in this small town that we do being an hour from uh, Pittsburgh, most of our restaurants are small independents. Yeah. And so that's pretty much all we go to. Yeah. I, I mean, I might go to Wendy's once in a while just cause it's fast. I need something, but we have restaurants that specialize in sandwiches. So everybody goes there for their sandwich mm-hmm. and other ones specialize, you know, in certain cuisines. And we just opened a Greek restaurant mm-hmm. here. And, and so we're very in tune to going to the independent That's ones, great. Yeah, you know, and they go, you'll see those owners at the farmer's market buying stuff for the week. Yeah. You know? And so that's why I looked at some place like Wendy's. I'm like, if they all can go down the farmer's market and buy some lettuce, why can't you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Why aren't you? Doing- I, and I know yeah. one of them in town, if I called him up, I, I grow raspberries. If I called him, I said, a bumper crock of raspberries. You want, you want some raspberries? He'd be like, yeah, I'll be right over. And he'd take the raspberries, Yeah, you know, and pay me for them. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I love. I'm, I'm getting excited about what you're saying because I'm the same way. Um, I uh, I would much rather support an independent restaurant. Um, I think because it, not only because uh, I spent most of my career in the industry, um, but I also recognize that I think that as you alluded to before, you're going to get a different experience. Mm-hmm. You know, now again not disparaging multi-unit chain restaurants there. They do a wonderful job and they employ a tremendous amount of people. They're very important to the economy and they put out um, most of the time, very consistent, good food. Um, I just have a preference just because I've spent so much time with independent restaurants that I, that I, that I, but if you're traveling and you're, you know, what you, you, you know, know what you're going to get. get. That's so, right. I agree. Cause I could walk into, you know, Fred's uh, hamburger place and it'd be terrible. You don't but know I know that get. if I go to Wendy's, right. it'll be exactly the exactly. way yeah. I expect so, it to be. So, so anyway, so I, I, I kind of took your question about my, my career and I went on a couple <laughs> different rabbit holes. So I thought that's okay. So no, that's great. So after, so um, after being with Cisco for 14 years, um, learning a tremendous amount about this industry, I really felt that after working there, I almost had a, a master's degree in in sales and distribution and and um, the customer experience. And I really kind of treasure all of that I've learned from that organization. I had an opportunity to go to work for a family-owned local produce distributor. Now, at the time, they were um, locally owned. They've since been... Um, out. Oh, okay. I think we'll, we'll, we can talk about that more, I think, as we talk about what's changing and evolving in food service. Um, at the time they were, they were, uh, it was a woman owned business, mm-hmm. third generation. Um, it was, uh, the name of the company was, is uh, Paragon Foods at the time in the strip district. And, um, they were doing business with quite a bit of chain restaurants. They had, uh, a good amount of, of chain restaurant business. They were doing business with, um, university of Pittsburgh, um, Sodexo, which is a contract management company, Aramark contract management company. And so it was really, for me, I saw a side of the business that I had never been exposed to because I had always been on the mom and pop side. So I got to see this whole new world in the same industry you know, so it was really, really interesting for me 
to get to experience what this other side was like that I never got to see before. So it was really, it was really interesting and, and neat. And, um, it was exciting for me to, to kind of learn this whole new world. And, um, you know, I really learned as I, as I talked about before that, um, where restaurants at a multi-unit level or a chain will contract nationwide, um, because of the amount of deliveries they get, which is maybe only one or two a week, um, produce, they don't have enough storage for produce mm-hmm. and they want to make sure it's maintained fresh. And so they will buy their produce locally. And, uh, I think that's another thing that, um, you know, customers don't really understand about distribution model. The distribution model is, um, and, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second is I want to get as least amount of deliveries into that restaurant as possible because it is a very expensive venture. So a chain restaurant may only take two deliveries a week from their, you know, main supplier. And then they may get produce every day or, or dairy every other couple of days. Um, one, as I said, you know, the produce cooler is only so big. Um, and two, because of the freshness of the product, they want to get multiple deliveries. So, um, so, so I, so I, what I found out, I get into this produce business. However, um, many of the same elements in the warehousing was was very similar. Now, this is an area that I think is that I found probably most fascinating, is because we can talk about um, broadline distribution, like a U.S. Foods or a Gordon or a PFG Performance Food Group, Cisco, and a lot of people don't understand kind of behind the scenes. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So let's think about the supply chain. All right. And so um, a distributor wants to buy fill in the blank. Maybe they want to buy frozen bread. Maybe they want to buy bacon. Maybe they want to buy canned tomato sauce. Whatever the case may be, they have to procure that item and bring it into their building. And so um, they may buy a truckload of items or they might buy less than truckload. Um, some of the national distribution companies have worked with this regional distribution centers where they'll, uh, the manufacturers will bring all the product in this regional distribution center. And then these local distributors uh, will take daily deliveries, you know, because I know that Brian talked about just in time delivery. So you're not mm-hmm. sitting on a lot of inventory. You know, not everybody has that same luxury. So they may have to buy truckloads. Um, into their building. So let's pretend that um, I have my warehouse uh, full of product from, you know, you've got your dry side of the warehouse and you have your refrigeration side of the warehouse and then you've got your freezer. And so usually one side is dry and the other side's cooler and freezer. And so depending upon who you're buying from, that truck is going to either back up to the cooler freezer side mm-hmm. or to the dry side in a typical, um, you know, full line distribution or broad line distributor. So, so the, the company who's bringing the product, they're responsible of, to get the product to the dock. Mm-hmm. So either the driver will do it or they'll hire something called a lumper service. A lumper service. A lumper service. So lumpers. Lumpers, okay. They're basically, they're just, they're there to basically get product off the truck and bring it onto the dock. Okay. Yes. I don't want to be called a lumper. No, the lumper, <laughs> they, but they perform a very essential function in the okay. supply chain. And then... The, the company is now has to put that product away. So let's pretend that they have, let's just say for the sake of this argument, 10 pallets of canned tomatoes. Okay. Now, that has to go into spaces in the warehouse. Now, you think about warehouse racking, 
it's vertical. It may be six levels high. And so you're putting um, those canned tomatoes in the warehouse in all of these spots in the warehouse as close to what's considered a pick slot as possible. The pick slot is usually the first or second row. It's where people can reach. Mm -hmm. So they can only go so high. And so those canned tomatoes. So, so these canned tomatoes are going here. Next company's bringing frozen bread. That's going into the freezer and all the slots in there. And then another company's in the cooler. So now you have all this product from thousands of manufacturers, thousands of suppliers, all through your warehouse. And then here comes Maureen's restaurant that orders. Okay. And Maureen is ordering paper disposable products. Maureen's ordering a couple of chemicals. She's ordering some frozen bread. She's ordering meat. She's mm -hmm. ordering maybe some, some juice. She's ordering canned goods. You know, she's ordering um, frozen appetizers, maybe frozen desserts. And then you've got some produce items. You've got some things in the cooler. So you've got, you've got items that are all through that warehouse. And so now you have an individual that during the night, usually between 10 p.m. and maybe 4 a.m., sometimes 6 p.m. And, and midnight is going through the warehouse and getting your order. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't think about that. Well, just like the shoppers at Target. <laughs> That's, right. And That's right. Or the Amazon right. people. Right. So they have to go to, so they have a, they basically say, you know, what warehouse slot it is in. And so throughout the night, you have to think about that maybe that, that warehouse slot, a pick slot, may only be able to hold two pallets of product. Well, through the course of the night, you know, there may be several thousand customers that are ordering. So you're going to run out of room. So then there's another individual that has to replenish and find where that extra case of tomatoes, canned tomatoes are, bring it down and put it in the pick slot while all of this is going on. And so think about. Well, what do they do with the frozen foods? Because if I ask for canned tomatoes and I ask question. for frozen food. So you've got one individual that's picking your frozen product. Uh -huh. You may have another individual that's in, in the fresh area. In, in, I'm sorry, in the cooler area. Okay. And you have another individual that's grabbing your, your canned and dry or dry goods. Because dry goods might be paper and disposable. Mm -hmm. Could be canned products. Could even be chemicals. And so all of those. So those are being... And you may, one individual, a picker, might be picking just your order. He might be picking four or five customer orders all at the same time. And so now your, your order is coming. And now at the end of that pick path, and you've got all your canned goods, now that has to be married with your cooler products and your frozen and it has to be wrapped on a pallet. So your order might be on a pallet with two or three or four other customers that are close to it. So let's say your fifth stop on the truck. You mm. might be also with the sixth stop and the seventh drop. But again, on the truck, you've got your canned goods in one area and you've got your cooler and frozen in another area, usually separated by a bulkhead. So the product stays cool. Wow, this sounds very complicated. It's, I know. It's in, a lot of people don't think about that. Yeah. So now then the driver now will get your product and will get the, the canned goods and cooler goods that are usually together because they're, the, the truck is refrigerated under 40 degrees. And then they'll, have, they'll get all that stuff out. And then they'll go around and grow to the freezer section and pull all the stuff out of the frozen section, put it on a dolly, bring it into the, into the, into the restaurant. The restaurant says, all right, you got to go up these steps or down those steps. You have to go all the way in the back and do this. So the driver is wheeling on their dolly, maybe eight or 10 cases at a time, back and forth, back and forth. Now, so you think about the expense of what that cost, all the product to have to get put away into the warehouse, mm -hmm. all those different slots, then get picked, mm -hmm. staged, mm -hmm. and then put on a truck. And then later a driver, you have to pay for the truck. 
and the driver and the insurance for the driver and the insurance on the truck and the tires. And every time that truck runs into something, which it does, (laughs) you know, all of those things and those components. And then the driver taking the product down a ramp, or if they're lucky, they might have a lift gate, but it still has to be wheeled into the restaurant and then back and then all those. So that you think that how much does that cost me? You know, and, and in an industry that is very commoditized. And so it is, so that's why in the distribution business, I want to deliver that restaurant as least times as possible. And I want to get as many products on that truck as I can, because the more products I can get on that truck, the more money I can make. So if the truck is there for 15 minutes delivering food for 25 minutes, it doesn't cost the company exponentially more. However, if I'm there for 10 more minutes, I can take in another three dolly loads or four dolly loads, how much more money I can make on that stop. So that's why distributors are always kind of at each other, trying to get more cases, more product, um, and trying to kind of incent the operator to buy more food from them, which is why this whole formula of you've got the distributors are saying, buy as much stuff from me as possible. And the operator saying, I need to buy from multiple purveyors so that I can get the best price. So it's, it's so there's there's this always this little kind of um, kind of butting of the heads here um, where salespeople distributors like buy more and operators saying well give me a better price yeah and so it's it's, it's always this constant battle where I think operators they get into a path or a pattern where they say well I buy this from my U.S. Foods guy, I buy this from my performance food group, I buy this from my Shamrock guy, and I buy this from my Cisco guy. So they may buy, you know, from all these different distributors, and they say, well, I, but I also buy my meat from this local guy, and I buy my produce from this local guy, and I might buy my dairy from this local, you know, company. Mm-hmm. And my so it's amazing what I think a lot of operators don't recognize is they end up having eight or 10 or 12 distributors you're delivering the product. And every time that back door opens for that delivery person to come in, there's an expense associated with it. That's one more company to pay, one more delivery I need to receive, one more company that I have to stop what I'm doing to receive the delivery, check it off. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, you know what? Um, I noticed that this case of tomatoes, there's a dent in it, or there's a hole in it, or this is leaking. Where did I buy it from? I don't know. Where did you buy it from? You buy it from three different companies. Who did you buy it from this week? So multi-unit operations, the contract food management companies, the multi-unit, the chain restaurants, they don't deal with that. They and know I would even think that would be so confusing. You're spending hours of your I week know. trying to do that. Now, where do companies like, I see them, um, a bread company, they go deliver to all the restaurants yeah. bread, mm-hmm. you know, so they're not part of this distribution s- system. Well, they're, they are. Um, however, most of those bread manufacturers, they're manufacturers, right. so they're making the bread, right. you know, we've they're got, delivering it. they're making it and they're delivering it. Yes. And, and more times than not, those companies, um, it's, it's an interesting formula. Their drivers are often the salespeople mm-hmm. and their drivers are the one who are able to make commission. Um, but they're going to not only restaurants, but they're a lot of times they're going to retail also. Yes. So it's a little bit of a different formula with bread. Now I look back. When I worked for one of the distributors that I worked for, there was a chain restaurant, big chain restaurant that was buying all of their 
all of their baked goods locally from a local bakery. And they decided to make the change to go with a frozen bread. And um, this was a kind of a monumental change. Um, so I think that's, I think it's, it's almost symbolic of kind of what's happening to the industry on a whole, mm-hmm. you know, as um, you're getting, I think you're seeing more of these family businesses getting squeezed one way or another. Either they're getting bought out, um, you know, they're, they're, they have so much product in one place that when that place decides to make a change and puts them out of business. No, yeah. So you're seeing, I think you're seeing that. And I think you'll continue to see that um, evolution. So if you look at like Paragon, for example, it's a third generation family owned business um, that, you know, um, has probably uh, doubled in size in the last, uh, you know, let's say 10, 15 years. And um, within the last few years got purchased by a broadline distributor. Oh. Yeah. So um, if you look locally, for example, um, you know, when I was selling out on the street, you know, one of my biggest competitors was Pennsylvania macaroni, mm-hmm. you know, or we call them Penn Mac. Yeah. So Penn Mac um, had a retail division, which most people know about in the strip district. Mm-hmm. They also had a food service division. And so the food service division was delivering to restaurants and I would compete against them. Well, a few years ago, that distribution got bought out by a company. And, um, and then that company had just got bought out by another company. <laughs> Oh my! Yeah, mm-hmm. but the Pen Mac is still there. So. Pen Mac Retail is kind of as a separate yeah. entity. Yeah, same with Jimmy Nino's. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Nino's and Pen Mac, both of their food service divisions, got bought out by a company called Greco, but they still operate their retail business that was separate. No. So their food service distribution was separate. I've always understood that the quality of food service food is higher than the quality, like in the grocery store. And I've told people that I said because you they can afford to buy something. For five dollars, turn around, sell it for fifteen. You're not going to want substandard food. You're not going to want soup that tastes like Campbell's chicken noodle soup. And you know, it's interesting. I'm not. I don't know if I would agree with that. I, I um, I'd have to try to think about the actual item. What's interesting about the food industry is, and I wanted to print this out for you, that the brands that we know. Um, based on from retail going up and down the aisles, it is amazing that there's only really a handful of companies that own all of those companies. Mm-hmm. There's a chart. I'll see if I can find it. I'll send it to you. It is amazing on how just this company owns this company that also owns that company. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, wow, I had no idea that this company owned that company and also in this company, also in that company. And there's been tremendous uh, amount of acquisition probably the last 15 or 20 years. And sometimes they just keep the name. So yes, the they do keep the name. So you have the same recognition. There was a, there was a flavor company in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and it was purchased by a very large flavor and they changed the name like in one day. And I didn't even catch it. And I was like, where's this company? Where'd it go? And I'm yeah. looking for it. And I talked to the people that work there and they said it was, it was devastating because their customers suddenly couldn't find them. Yeah. So their customers were going out looking for something else because that's right. They thought the company went out of business. Yeah, I mean, and they—that uh, that was a, the dumbest idea I ever heard of. Like they should have kept it together because we were talking about a company that was a hundred years old. Right. This wasn't. This was an established company. Right. This is like this would be like somebody buying, you know, 
uh, Coca-Cola and decided we're not going to have Coca-Cola. We're going to call it something else. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, the, the, the marinara sauce that I have grown to love over these last couple of years is this RAO, this Rouse. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. I get it at Costco, which is probably my favorite store in the world. Um, and I just read within the last year that Rouse got bought out, mm-hmm. I think for like a couple billion dollars, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, they kept the name and I don't think they're going to change it. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would doubt it's it. It's a brand. It's a well, brand. Yeah. I've always, when I talk to people, my favorite example I give them is I say, um, do you think Pillsbury is a company? They're like, well, yeah. I'm like, you know, there's no Pillsbury ever anywhere. I mean, it's gone. It's been gone for like 30 years. I'm like why? Where'd it go? I bought Pillsbury yesterday. Right. I go, cause it's a brand. Right. That's correct. And it's, and you have something like Pillsbury, um, in the can, the tubes is owned by one company. That's correct. Pillsbury flowers owned by oh, another. That's right. And Pillsbury, Just, you know, like the, uh, frozen foods owned by another one and Pillsbury bakery mixes by another. I mean, these companies own them and there's, they make them and they sell them and you think Pillsbury is a company. It's gone. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because in food service, I learned like the Nestle company, they own probably eight or 10 brands that we recognize, you know, in the grocery store all the time. And I remember, and we'll um, talk about the broker network and manufacturers. We haven't even touched on that. But I remember uh, I was talking to my mom and I said, uh, yeah, I'm going to be riding with the Nestle rep today. We're going to be going to her customers to try to show them some samples. And she said, oh, well, give me some chocolate. Chocolate? What do you mean chocolate? She's like, it's Nestle's. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, I didn't even think about it, you know, because I didn't associate Nestle's with chocolate. I, am, I, I associated Nestle's with the eight different brands of product that we were going to be talking about that day, whether it be soup mixes or uh, frozen entrees, um, uh, bases, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that was our focus for the day. And there wasn't any chocolate associated with anything we were doing that day. So it was like, wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I guess that's what most people think about when they think about Nestle's is chocolate. Oh, and some companies, yeah. what's popular in the United States is what's in yes. popular that's right. in another country. That's right. If you look at Heinz, yeah. they have some products in they England do. that everybody loves. And over here, you wouldn't even, they don't even have them. We don't even have them. That's right. That's even, right. They're not distributed over here, nothing. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I bought yes. a candy bar when I was in Ireland once and it was the uh, the Twix, no, no, the Kit Kat, the Kit Kat um, dark chocolate. And I wanted to buy them here in the United States. And they said, well, they're not in the United States. I said, what do you mean they're not in the United States? They're, Kit Kats are everywhere. Like, no. And it was another probably five, six years before they got here. So the next time I went over to Europe, I bought like 30 bars and brought them back with me because they weren't here yet. Yeah. That's what's, that's what's so fun about food, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so relative. Everybody can connect, can connect about food on one level or another. Cause I, I think what you just said is pretty fascinating. So, um, what I touched on earlier is the broker network and, um, and that's another element in, in food service that I think, um, you know, many people don't understand. So for example, if you think about a particular company and they want to have their product represented in the market, 
um, they can choose to kind of find a manufacturer rep, say, I'm, I'm going to hire one or two people that's going to represent my product in this market. And they're going to go around to all of the distributors. So the, all the broadline distributors, all the mid-sized distributors, even the small distributors. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to sell my product so that they will then go out to their customers and sell my product. Well, that's difficult to do because there's so many distributors and it's difficult to kind of satisfy all of them, you know, with all that work. And then how do you divide the time and things like that? So what most manufacturers will do is they will um, hire a, a broker and that broker will represent sometimes up to a hundred different brands. Now, what they won't do typically is they won't represent competing brands. So they may, you know, again, um, so maybe 30 or 40 might be the typical amount of, of brands they, they carry. Again, it's, it's been, it's been a while since I've been in that game. So it might be more than that now, but um, so so a broker now is responsible for kind of penetrating the market with that product. So they're the liaison with the dis distributors and they might be doing incentives and say, hey, you know, we'll give you so many dollars off or we're going to pay your salesperson a spiff or we're going to do a something. Spiff? A spiff is basically like a, an incentive. Okay. Like you sell this case, I'm going to give you 50 cents or a dollar. And so the salespeople now have now an incentive to sell their brand versus okay. another brand. A little bribery, huh? A little bribery, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Where, yeah, um, and 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 what's interesting now because was with Brian. Brian talked about doing contract manufacturing, mm -hmm. talked about private labeling. All broadline distributors have their own brand. So if you if you walk into a restaurant, you will see a Cisco canned tomato. Uh, there might be U.S. Foods canned tomato. It might be Performance Food Group. Uh, you know, it's one. So they have they'll have these manufacturers that will pack their brands for them. And so, real truthfully, salespeople are heavily incentivized. Is that a word? To, yeah. to sell their, their brand first. So, not only does it differentiate from the competition, kind of gets them hooked on the brand, and there's obviously much more money or profitable for their own brand, just like on a giant eagle selling their store or shop and save. Or, well, you go you to know, Sam's Club and they have their, their, their brand. Market. That's right. That's right. Costco's Kirkland. Theirs? That's yeah. right. It's their brand. So, there's more profit in their own brand. And so, um, again, those companies aren't making anything. They're just, they're just, it's a private label company. Sometimes they're national uh, companies, but they're private labeling and, under the Cisco brand. Oh, I'd love to find yeah. out. I, I like to go and I can do it Yeah. based on the people I know in the food industry. I'll go find out who makes that. Yeah. And now, so that'll decide whether I want to buy the yeah. store brand. Cause yeah. I'll find out that, you know, like you have cranberry juice. Almost all the cranberry juice made by Ocean Spray. Yes, that's right. And they just put different labels on that's it. Right. That's you know? right. Yes. So you, if you want cranberry juice, buy the store brand. Buy yeah. whatever because it's most likely the, most Ocean likely. Spray. Yes. Ocean Spray. Yes, that's you very know? true. And you do things like that. There are certain products out there that they will not contract manufacture. Like you cannot get someone to contract manufacture Heinz ketchup. That's correct. And Heinz will not. That's correct. So that's you right. want Heinz, it's going to have the name on it. That is right. That's right. And some, yes, yeah, some, some folks will not do that. Um, and, and it kind of, it's really all depends, but that's what's, that's to me is what I w found most interesting is when I got into the, into the industry, all of the behind the scenes things that I like, Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. I didn't recognize that. I didn't realize that there were companies that make it for this or they don't making it themselves or, or how they're all connected. Oh yeah. That's all, that's all one company that represents all those 15 different uh, organizations. That's all one main, um, 
manufacturer that those are all brands for them, which again, like, as you said about Pillsbury, it was really fascinating for me to learn that all. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit that goes on behind the scenes from a food service distribution um, network that is, uh, I think most consumers don't know about. Now, food service distribution is separate from our grocery store. That's right. Absolutely. Distributors. That's correct. So it's a lot of it is based on how it's packed. So many of the same brands, there are brands that I've interacted with on the food service side that have absolutely zero retail exposure. And there's actually more brands on the retail side that have no food service exposure. Um, however, the majority of brands that you will see on the, on the food service side also have you know, recognition or it, it may be a different name, um, but it'll have some type of retail um, exposure. So there's a lot of similarities between the two. It's just packed different. Yeah, and I was going to say, because you can go into a college campus and see, right. those, but they're not packaged the way I would find them in a right. grocery like store. The one can that is um, prevalent in food service is a number 10 can, mm-hmm. you know, packed six to a case. And I know because I've carried them and they're very heavy. <laughs> so uh, so you see six number 10 cans is is basically kind of like the default within food service. And you very rarely will see a number 10 can in a grocery store. Right. You know, and um, where things will be packed more bulk on food service will obviously pack retail in a different packaging um, for the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so when you're able to pack things on a larger size, obviously it costs less money. And so food service packaging... You, know, you you will see some food service packaging um, at times when you go to like a Costco or a Sam's Club. What's interesting is that um, now there's where it used to be a, a food retail pack or food service pack. Now there's something called a club pack. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's because the um, proliferation of BJ's and Sam's and Costco mm-hmm. that this is so popular that there is now a club pack that's kind of in between a retail pack and a food service pack. Yeah. Like yeah. I like to make spaghetti sauce mm-hmm. and I grow my own tomatoes and I make it, but in the winter I don't have, you know, right. if we've used all the spaghetti sauce I made, I will go to Sam's club, buy the number 10 can, buy yeah. the whole thing, bring it home. It's mm-hmm. just tomato sauce. Yeah. And I will put all my own spices in it and everything. And I actually will buy two or three of them mm-hmm. and we will can them all. Right. Because I have all the empty jars from the ones we use and I can them all. And because my family won't, will not eat store-bought spaghetti sauce. Mm. And we're not even Italian. Your family is very spoiled. Ah, yeah. can tell. Well, it was. See one over there right now (laughs) who's smiling because they know how spoiled they are. It was really funny (laughs) is I tried every spaghetti sauce on the market for probably a good 20 years. Sure. And one day I had none and I didn't feel like going to the store. So I took the tomato sauce and I did what my mother always did to it. And I served it. And the whole family was like, what is this magical sauce? <laughs> and I was like, I just, twice. they said, don't you ever bring. So I have never bought a can of t- a spaghetti sauce in probably the last 15 years. That's great. I, and it was just by accident. And then I was talking to my sister over the holidays and she said that one day she asked me for the recipe where she wanted. And I was like, I just guessed the yes, amounts. Right. She uses it as a recipe. She measures that stuff that's out. Good. I just dump. And she, that's the only spaghetti sauce she'll eat. It's the only spaghetti sauce her children will eat. So he's gone through the family and her son married an Italian. Mm-hmm. And he won't eat their spaghetti sauce. He only eats this spaghetti. Wow. I know. And I said, 
Okay, either you have no taste buds or I don't know, but they like the spaghetti sauce. That's amazing. Yeah, so everybody in the family, this is extended out from my little, you know, moment of uh, creativity because I had nothing. Yeah, well, it's interesting um, because I think (coughs) in a lot of ways that circles back to the Wendy's lettuce story. Um, Because talk about independent operators that will go down to the farmer's market to buy their 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 produce which i think there's something very romantic about that honestly mm-hmm. i think for a chef to be able to go and buy from you know local farms and support the community and um, buy fresh goods is something that i think is very sexy and i think from a chef standpoint i think if you know you know they go to culinary school or they have this passion for food i mean it's a, it's just it's so, um, I think it's so much more exciting for that chef for their restaurant to go down to a, um, to go down to a farmer's market or go to a farm and buy their produce versus getting it from, comes out of, you know, from a distributor that comes out of California, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that applies not just produce, I think is predominant because it's, it's more, um, abundant where you're not going to find as, as many of those other categories, but that's one I will, I mean, I was at the Mars farmer's market over the summer and I saw a country club chef there, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was cool. And this is a really high end country club. Now, um, what's interesting because I was in that produce industry for, for, you know, over five years is that, you know, chain restaurants and many multi-unit outlets will not let their chefs do that because of the traceability factor. And they have, so, so your story about the raspberries to local restaurant, I mean, it makes sense. It's good. I like the story and I'm, I'd eat the raspberries when I was there. Mm -hmm. However, um, you know, there is a, there is an element there that is dangerous and that if for some reason someone should get sick on those raspberries, and they went to the business owner and said, where'd you get those raspberries? And they said, I got them from Maureen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, what's, what's Maureen's, um, do they, does Maureen have a, 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 is she GAP certified? Well, what's that? Well, that's good agricultural practices. You know, is she guaranteed that there's nothing that's getting into that soil or how they're doing things? So granted, on an independent level, on a, you know, restaurant it's not that big of a deal. Happens all the time. I actually think it's very healthy. Mm-hmm. However, as you start getting to um, a liability factor, when you start getting into two or three or four restaurants, and you realize, you know, what can happen if someone should get sick, and the traceability, um, it is <coughs> significant. I mean, look at what happened cantaloupe just within the last couple of weeks. What I missed it. Cut cantaloupe is getting kids uh, sick all over the country, and um, I think there might have been a few deaths. So again, they, they, they traced it to kind of one farm, you know, you know, one place where the kale were coming from. Did you see there was, there was an ingredient in applesauce uh, that came from Ecuador mm. that had high levels of lead in it. So, oh, I saw that one. So that traceability factor, when you start getting into any type of, you know, medium to large size operation is tantamount to the... Um, insurance that all the products, they know where it came from, you know, what the source was, and they're able to go back. So, um, 
so that you know where that cantaloupe came from or the applesauce came from. They have the ability to say it came from this farm. It came from this company. You know, stop selling. We can trace it back. Um, there is There have been tremendous strides in food safety um, over the last several years that is really somewhat fascinating. Yeah, because I know a lot of the local restaurants around yeah. here, They the all the desserts are made by their mom. Yeah, yeah. And so, so she's like, she bought all her ingredients at, you know, the grocery store. Right. And if that, if it's made in the restaurant and there's food safety practices that are done in the restaurant, you feel like it's okay. However, if she made it on her kitchen counter at her house. Yeah, they do. And you didn't say that just now, but (laughs) if, if, if they, if they, if they made it on the kitchen counter and half an hour earlier, they were cutting chicken. Yes. And they cleaned it up with a paper towel. Yes. That's where you get into oh, I know. problems. I now, will that stop me from eating uh, dessert from, no. Uh, no, but it's just, it's the reality of it. Well, after the, mm. after the COVID stuff mm-hmm. and people were like, oh, you can't do bake sales anymore and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I looked at some of these people and I said, do you realize when you walk into Wendy's, you had a 16 year old in there making your food. Do you think that that's a, like, yes. that's better hygiene than this I agree. person made 100%. this bake sale stuff. Completely agree. Yes. I was like, no. No. I said, so if you're let a 16, 17-year-old make your food at a restaurant, I think you could buy the bake sale stuff. Yes, I agree. You're right. I don't think, yeah, agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. However, it's it's a valid concern. Oh, you I know. know. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I listened to uh, Brian talk about pandemic and the impact on, on the industry. And I think that the uh, pandemic was... At the time uh, the pandemic happened, I was working for uh, kind of a small to mid-sized family-owned business in the meat industry. And so uh, we sold most of, uh, you know, most of the country clubs around Western Pennsylvania and um, family-owned restaurants um, had a, you know, a handful of of multi-unit operations, but most of them were independent operators and country clubs and white tablecloth restaurant and just bars and restaurants. Um, not only selling them all of their, you know, meat, chicken, poultry, um, duck, lamb, uh, pork, and all the ancillary like turkey and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when the pandemic happened, all of a sudden, um, A, there was, couldn't get as many products as we wanted to because there was right. shortage of supply chain. But what happened was, is that because restaurants closed mm-hmm. and all of a sudden people just rushed to the grocery store. And all of a sudden, the grocery stores were out of stuff. Right. So we were in a few, t- in a handful of instances, we were backfill for some of these retail operations, and we also had people coming to our distribution center, which, you know, up until then there was very little retail mm-hmm. that we were selling to, but we had consumers just coming to the back door or side door and just picking up cut steaks, or they wanted chickens, or they wanted steaks, or ground beef, or pork chops, things like that. And honestly, that business during the pandemic really kept people working. Because of worth of that, we lost so many restaurants that had gone on hiatus or closed that it had a big impact on our Well, the restaurants had to figure out, some of them couldn't figure out how we could package this. Like, they didn't do carry out. Yeah, that's right. So that's now right. they suddenly have to do carry out. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Because Wendy's and McDonald's and Burke and they all did carry out all the time. That was their whole right. thing. So they could business. But I know some of the family owned ones around here are like, 
And I, and I ordered a couple of things from them from different restaurants during that time. And when I got it home, I was like, this isn't anything like. No, because they threw hot chicken on yes. the cold lettuce and I got home and I had this, just this pile of wet green stuff yeah. that had wilted completely with this hot chicken that was now cold. So I would call, I didn't stop ordering for my call and say, okay, I want that same chicken salad, but I want the lettuce salad with the whole salad separate from the hot chicken. Just put two containers and I will put the hot chicken on it when it gets home. And that solved the problem. Yeah. And hopefully they, um, the restaurant recognized when that more people like you called that they invested in some better packaging, Yeah, you know? So I, at least I hope you're, you're right. I mean, I think that, um, during the pandemic, um, DoorDash, Uber Eats, um, they just crushed, they killed it because, um, People, they were reluctant to go out to a restaurant and eat. So they take out was just a phenomenal element of our industry at that time. And, um, and I think those sales to those third-party companies have slid somewhat because more people are going out to eat. However, I think there's a good amount of the population that just got accustomed to just saying, Hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just bring it to my door. You know, I, you know what? I've never used DoorDash or any of those because- it's there. The restaurants are just less than, you know, yeah. a quarter of a mile from my house. We just go down and pick it up. I think it is. a. I don't know this for a fact. I'm only, <clears throat> it's only speculating, but I feel like it's almost generational in some ways. Oh, yes. You know, where I think that if you talk to somebody 30 and under their, um, their comfortability with DoorDash is they're just accustomed to it. Or maybe somebody kind of in our generation, it just feels weird. That like somebody's having my food in the front seat of their car. Now, I was okay with it with pizza because yes. I didn't really ever think about it. And it feels like it's one of those hot bags. So I feel like it's okay. But when I know that it's just like some random dude and it's got my food in the front seat of his 87 Subaru, it just feels a little weird. Yeah. And they've said, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that the number one item that disappears from your food more often than not is French fries because the driver is reaching into the bag and grabbing your French fries. But I get it. Like every time we got fast food, what do we reach into the bag for before we make it home? We call that food tax. That's it. That's I, right. That's we right. call it food tax. Yeah. If I have to pick, if I have to go to Wendy's or Bur wherever and pick You're up the food. You're not going to get as many fries as you ordered. <laughs> I'm going to eat fries on the way home. Well, obviously the, uh, the drivers on those third party delivery services feel the same way. Now, uh oh, but that sounds weird. They're touching my, listen, they're I, in there. I'm not, cause I'm not, I'm blindly pulling listen, the French fries I, out. I'm just telling you what I've heard. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm not saying the drivers are doing that. I'm just saying that what I've heard is that 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 is happening. And so the people that are telling that story more than not, more often than not are the paper paper disposable manufacturers who are now making products that are basically um, theft proof. Oh, okay. So so they're the ones who are spreading those stories so they can sell more of their packaging, yeah. which makes sense to me yeah that's like you know if your computer they keep telling you your computer's gonna get a virus right because i always figured the companies who are protecting you as a virus are the ones inventing the viruses so they can sell. see there's a virus now you need our 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 virus protection you're only guessing that you don't know that to be fact no <laughs> i'm like sounds reasonable to me you know i, I think that's what disagree. i would do yes now 
what if a restaurant wants a certain product mm-hmm. and you don't even have it on your, you don't even have it. It's like something new, a new ingredient, a new item, you know, a new food trend. Does, does a food distribution company then go out and try to source that for them? It all depends. Um, so it depends upon like, here's the way that I would, when I worked for a broadline distributor, you know, I, I needed to know a little bit about everything. And I think about somebody, you know, like a $70 billion corporation, you know, a lot of people will make the analogy of their Turk, almost like a, a battleship. They don't turn very easily, you know, because they're so behemoth. And what they do, is, as long as you stay within their parameters, they are phenomenal at it. If you try to go outside of that and try to do something that doesn't kind of haunt, that's where it gets a bit challenging. Now, where my last company, you know, was, you know, a small company, let's say under 25 million, they were incredibly flexible. And honestly, I think that that's how a family-owned business today and that size, that's how they compete against a Braunleiter because they are very flexible and they're able to source things. They're able to find things. And, you know, the last company I worked for, you know, if you asked for something, you know, we did everything in our power to go find it. We'll go source it from somewhere to go get it and get it to them. And I think that, uh, I think that, which is one of the reasons that I think these boutique companies um, have a really nice livelihood and the ability they have staying power because they do things that the big guys can't do. And so I think that they have a really special place in the market and every city has them, whether it's the produce company or the meat company or the dairy company. They have the ability to kind of source things, go outside their the kind of the the normal structure, and just and get things and figure it out. And I think that that is really an invaluable service to family and independent owned restaurants. You know, um, they don't have the same type of of structure, the same quality of 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 systems, a computerized system, from a tracking system, from a database. So these folks are, are just kind of operating like a, like an independent small business. And so they have to do whatever they, they, they can do. So the ability to buy from these small distributors to be able to, to kind of do find things and do things and, and get things for them, I think is really invaluable. And so um, as you find more of these mid-sized companies that are getting gobbled up by the broadliners because Think about a $50 billion cor- a corporation. How do they grow? Well, you know, if they do the math, like what, what, is, what does 1% growth mean? That's, you know, if I'm doing my math right, that's $500 million. That's not easy to do. You know, so how do you grow? You know, you have to figure acquisitions. out acquisitions. There's some organic growth, but, you know, you have to acquire. So I think you'll see um, the industry um, continue this, you know, this acquisition process as these big broadliners, these top 10 or top 20 continual kind of gobble up and find, you know, those mid-sized, sometimes third, fourth, fifth generation family-owned business. Some of them will keep their name. Some of them will become part of the family. I think you'll see, it's been going on for a while. I think you'll see more and more of that, especially as you see kind of the the generational challenge of, does the third generation want to be in the business? Mm-hmm. You know, do they, do they want to do something else? Um, you know, they do they want to, see what their dad did and worked real hard all these years. They want to do something else. 
And so I think you'll you see a lot of these mid-sized companies. So I hope I'm hopeful that um, these boutique organizations throughout our country that are typically multi-generation, typically family-owned, um, will continue to survive and, and serve a real important element to these independent restaurants um, who need them. I think that um, you know that what's happened over the last. 20 years that have, that have put a lot of these companies out of business is uh, these restaurant depots. You know, they got restaurant depots all over the country and some of the multiple cities and they become that, that place where you can go and just, you know, find what you need because mm-hmm. um, it's there and, you know, churches and fire halls. And listen, there are restaurants in this city that will get 70% of their product from restaurant depot. Um, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a different, it's a different, um, it's a different playing field, yeah. you know? Now is beverages a little bit different in the it food is. service? It is where, um, you will see more as far as, uh, like, uh, broad line distributors will carry some products like, you know, Coke or, or some Pepsi. You'll see a little bit of that, um, more so in the back in the box, back in the boxes, fountain drinks, not mm-hmm. the canned goods. However, um, most, Soft drink distributors, you know, they're good at what they do because they're giving coolers away and, you know, there's, and they're, and they're distributing themselves and it's easier for them. I think more times than not, like, um, you know, a food service distribution will carry bag in the box just because it's a food service outlet and it's just easy for them to get their bag in the box from their food service because it's coming more often. So that's usually a kind of a marriage and agreement between, but you don't, but most of the kind of beverage because they, because of the inventory that they carry, it's hard for a distributor to carry all of the different products. And so I think a lot of times you'll see the Coke and the Pepsi still backing their truck up to these, to restaurants and even retail. Um, we'll see a little bit of a marriage food service, but I think the, those trucks are still backing up quite a bit to those operations just because of what it is. But the food service would handle things like coffee. Tea. Oh yes, Absolutely. All yes, of those yes, kind of things. Yeah. Now, granted, there are still coffee companies out there. Mm-hmm. There are still, you know, that are still distributing. There's still family-owned coffee business. However, yeah, most there, you will see food service operations that uh, distributors that will distribute. They'll, they'll provide them the equipment, provide them with the service, and they'll provide them with the coffee and everything, the decanters and everything else. Yeah. There was a there was a, um, a hotel in town mm-hmm. that had coffee. You mm-hmm. know, just like any hotel and. We would go there for banquets, mm-hmm. weddings, and things like that. And I don't know what it is about their coffee, but I love their coffee better than any coffee I've ever had. And I talked to the waitress. I said, what kind of coffee is this? She goes, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I said, go in the back and look. Yeah. In the back, she says, the bag says coffee. <laughs> and I said, nothing else. She says, no. I said, you don't even know what brand it is? She goes, no, it says coffee. It's a huge bag. It says coffee. And that hotel's since gone out of business and is no longer here. But my husband still laughs at me because they still talk about this stupid coffee and we have no idea what it was. And she was just walking around with one of those big, you know, those bun maker yes. things. Yeah. So it wasn't a special process and it wasn't any cap, you know, cappuccino or espresso. It was just coffee. It wasn't a days in, was it? Yeah. It was? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. The days in. Yeah, I sold them. They were a customer of mine. Yeah, you were kind of remember coffee? What co- I don't remember what coffee was, but yeah, they were nice people there. It was yeah. the best yes. coffee. Yeah, yeah. And I would go down there and they would laugh because, you know, normally you drink a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I would go 10, yeah. 
12 cups of coffee wow, during that wedding or run, something. Wow. And I was like, I wanted to bribe him, just go some of it and I'll yeah. take it home with me. Well, you just, you basically, that bag was inside of a box yeah. and you had to figure out what the box said. Yeah. So the box would have had the name of the supplier. And now again, there's coffee companies around, um, you know, there's a, there's a coffee, there's a, in Grove City, um, the George Howe company, they started as a coffee company. They still sell coffee, but they're more well known for their, um, candy and nuts. Mm -hmm. But you know that for years, uh, there's S and D there's, there's a lot of, there's still some, some local brands. And I think coffee has changed quite a bit, especially in Western Pennsylvania. There's many coffee shops here that are pizza places anymore. Um, but it's, uh, I think that's, uh, another interesting dynamic. I think that when I went to work for Paragon, the one thing that I, that I recognized, which was really interesting to me that that chefs really did have a connection to sourcing local foods. So chefs wanted to buy locally. They wanted to support local farmers and they wanted to see what they can do. That's different for person getting something that whether it came out of California or a manufacturing plant or something, something that would not only taste different or taste better or have a level of sustainability or being supportive of the local economy. So I think many chefs have that connection. And at, at, at Paragon, really try to kind of grow that that local sourcing um, network to bring you know more farmers um, even had local chicken and to bring more companies into the, the the local mix to be different and also to offer um, our chefs something different um, at one point we even scheduled something that we called a farmers forum where we brought in farmers that we did business with this was in the winter time because the only time they can get away mm-hmm. from their farm we brought in farmers and we talked to them for a while about what did they want to see more from us how can we be supportive of them and this is how you can be more supportive of us after we had that conversation we brought in some of our top customers so we had chefs and farmers together in the same room talking about kind of what each one of them wanted to see it was really a cool dynamic um to do that it was it was interesting we did that for a few years and then even when i when when Went back working for Cisco again. Um, another individual, either two of us, really engineered a program to to replicate that. You know, how can we, as a national, global, you know, distributor, how can we make it local? And uh, we were successful at the time in finding about twenty different companies that were making products here locally that we were able to enter into the kind of our supply chain to distribution. And what would sound would be easy. Um, it's just not, you know, because instead of receiving an, an, an 18 wheel truck with, you know, whatever, 24 plus pallets on it, you got a guy in a pickup truck <laughs> coming back to the dock with 20 cases of lettuce or something like that. It's just, it's a different formula, mm-hmm. you know, or one of our trucks going and doing a backhaul and backhauling, you know, X amount of products. Um, it, was, it was just, the, the formula was, was challenging and you really need, needed individuals that were really focused on committing to that. Um, you know, one of the, the first, one of the first folks that we've had that, that joined the, the local sourcing program at Cisco was a gentleman named John Jameson. So John and his wife, Suki, um, up until just recently, were running a lamb farm out in the Latrobe area, near Crabtree. 
a lot of people didn't even know this, but Jameson Lamb um, sold to chefs all over the country. They had more distribution probably in San Francisco and Miami and New York and Dallas than they did here in Western Pennsylvania. Um, John Jameson learned his lamb processing from Julia Childs. Really? Uh-huh. I didn't yeah. know that. I went to his lamb. Yeah. Did you meet John? Um, I think I did. I met his wife. Suki. Yeah. But I, the one thing that I really learned, this sounds really silly, but I thought lambs were like these little animals. And so there were these, I thought, sheep. Yeah. And they said, no, those are lambs. And I said, that's a lamb. I thought a lamb was this little teeny, like, size of a little poodle. Yeah. I didn't know. They're that you know, and bigger. they said, well, a, it's a lamb up until, I think, 18 months old. Yeah. And I said, oh, I thought those were sheep. And yeah. they said, could you imagine how many little, teeny little things we'd have to manufacture to yeah. get? Yeah. Yeah. And and I knew somebody who worked in a lamb company, totally different than theirs. And she was good. I guess she worked there for three or four months until Easter came. And I don't remember which religion it was, but they wanted their lambs. I don't know if it was Greek Orthodox or something. They wanted their lambs like at maybe a month old mm. to three months old. And she said, they asked me to come out to the truck to unload the lambs. And she said, I went out there. And I went back in my office and said I quit and left. Yeah. She said, I can't take these. This is like they were killing little dogs. Yeah. I was like, I can't do that. I saw these big woolly ones. I was like, okay, I'm good. now I got it. I'm good. These ugly things, I can yeah. I can eat those. But yeah, I went I went to their lamb. The John and Suki are phenomenal people. And, uh, you know, so I really, not only was it a pleasure to work with them, but just to get to know them. Um, and, and to me, that was what was inspiring for me to kind of be the conduit of this local network is, you know, there, there's a, another farmer that was out in, in Bedford County, um, who was selling his, his meat within downtown Pittsburgh and around the area. And he was running a really great business. And, uh, you know, we partnered with him to say, Hey, why don't you try to get out of the distribution business and just be in the, you know, the, the, the cattle business. We'll distribute the product for you. We'll sell it for you. And we just partner with you. And then we're going to, you know, partner with you and we'll use your name and we'll say that, Hey, we're representing this brand in the marketplace. And when I met this individual, um, probably within seven years, business is eight to 10 times what it was when I met him. And that is so rewarding for me that I think about, you know, this, this family who are just tremendous people and what it's done for them and for their future and for their grandkids. And, uh, and knowing that I was an integral piece of that is just really exciting for me. And I think that I think chefs and business owners have that same level of connection. You know, I am, I'm serving product to my customers that is supporting a local family, mm-hmm. you know, a, a farmer, you know, and multiple generations here that's within, you know, maybe a 60 or a hundred mile radius. And I'm, I'm putting produce on my table that was grown, you know, soil here in Western Pennsylvania, and it's now on the plate. So I'm supporting the local um, economy. I'm supporting this local family. And I think that, I think business owners and restaurateurs and chefs and kitchen managers. I think that that to me is what is very exciting. Now, some of those items can be cost prohibitive just because of, 
It's a lot harder to to grow lettuce here in Western Pennsylvania than it is in Salinas, California. Right. Now, obviously, you got to bring it across the country. However, it's just it's just more expensive economies of scale. Um, it's not it's not triple the price, you know. And I think that so there is there's a happy medium there. And I and I think that honestly, in a lot of ways, I think consumers recognize that. Um, you know, there's a, there's an organization in the Strip District, this Harvey Farms. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. That, um, Harvey Farms is um, you know, the owner, Simon, is passionate about kind of local sourcing and, and local farming. He married that with this very robust technology where now he has an, an online um, grocery business that is supporting predominantly local businesses. And so he's got customers and they just recently expanded to Butler County and out to Beaver County and they're predominantly in Allegheny County. But Simon and his group with cheese and produce and meat and chicken, a lot of it, if not all of it is sourced, you know, locally or it's sustainable or it has, uh, you know, a feature to it that makes it special, whether it be organic. His product is, it's, it's a great business and it's growing really excited for him. His team is phenomenal. Um, and there's an example, I think, that just shows that consumers do have an appetite, pun intended, yes. <laughs> pun intended for, you know, locally sourced product. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I think that, I think that, uh, I think the industry, as it evolves and changes, I think you'll, on the one side, you'll see continuous acquisition You'll see private equity getting into the food service space because they they see how much how profitable it can be, how much fun it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, dangerous too, but you know from from a standpoint of of your risk factor. But on the other side, I think you also see that consumers are are smarter and they they want to know more about um, the sustainability factor of of the companies they're doing business with and and how they and what what impact they're having up on the on the climate and on their future um and so whether it be you know i, I yes i will tell you that i think that plant based diets are growing but they're still going to be for a lot of years to come a lot of cattle right right <laughs> you know we're, People's going, people go out especially to eat. Especially in Western Pennsylvania. Especially in Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> we're going to eat our meat. Beat and potatoes town. But, and we're going to eat uh, our venison. That's right. Yeah, we go, right. we go out locally, get it? Sure. Well, the um, the one thing with working in the food manufacturing, mm-hmm. there was pretty robust business in Pittsburgh with, you know, Heinz mm-hmm. and Del Monte and mm-hmm. things like that. When they decided to relocate all those people, and I don't think they bargained for this. People aren't going to leave Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. They just yeah. won't leave Pittsburgh. You can't yeah. make them leave. Yeah. So all of a sudden, all these little teeny food companies up. Yeah. Especially it was prior to the pandemic, but that was the Food and Beverage Network. That's right. Came out of that. That's correct. And to support all these companies. And the Food and Beverage Network, I thought, was so unique. The meetings that I went to. Because they would actually stand there and say, oh, no, you've got this business. You need to go help this person That's over right. here. And you have a piece of equipment I think they need. So you go over there. And in the meeting, the guy who was running it would just make up meetings, separate meetings for yeah. people right there on the fly. And they would get everything they wanted. And a couple of people were starting food trucks. And he said, well, you go talk to this person and they'll get you what you need. So the Food and Beverage Network is uh, is part of Food 21. So Food 21 is a nonprofit organization. It's really focused on the food economy and, um, and really empowering business owners 
and uh, underprivileged areas and workforce development. It is a really dynamic organization that uh, we need to do a better job of letting more people know about us. And uh, I'm on the board and I'm very proud to be a member of Food 21 and um, and what we do with the Food and Beverage Network. And matter of fact, uh, Joe Butte, who's one of the founders, um, we're going out for a little happy hour this evening. Oh, good. So I'll be able to tell Joe the story that I was here today. Um, but I think the vision behind what the Food and Beverage Network is, is how do we create this very localized um, kind of trade network? All of these small companies and mid-sized companies who are manufacturing just great products and how can they not only interact with each other, but how can they figure out how to lean on each other to get their product to market in a mm-hmm. much more meaningful way? And there's some really cool things that are going on in Western Pennsylvania that really fly under the radar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a group called Catapult that is almost, it's an accelerator for kind of underserved communities to be able to, to kind of take businesses and entrepreneurs and help them get to the next level and eventually figure out, you know, how can I get this product, whether it be a food truck, whether it be distribution in something like Giant Eagle or um, you know, even at, at working through Harvey Farms. So there's a lot of uh, cool things that are out in the marketplace. So if there are people that listen to this podcast and say, hey, I've got a great idea for an item that I've been making you know, for my neighbors and my cousins and my relatives that everybody says, you should jar this or you should take this to market. You know, what the Food and Beverage Network does is, is, is really provide a level of expertise to determine how can we take that product and get it to market, whether it be on the food service side, on the retail side, or even within maybe a, a kind of a farmer's market a network um, from a packaging standpoint, a labeling standpoint. Um, so there is there are subject matter experts that work within Food 21 that can really help accelerate those businesses. So hopefully there's some people that are listening to this podcast that fall into that category mm-hmm. and um, you know they can they can go online and look at uh, Food 21. I think it's food21.org or contact me and uh, I can help them um, try to get into this network. But we did an event um, over the summer at uh, the New Pittsburgh Brewing Company. Um, which is phenomenal, by the way. Mm-hmm. So you might want to reach out to them to have a future podcast because I got to tell you, they're, they're building, I think it's in Cheswick or Springdale. I always get those two confused. It's along the river there, but their building is immaculate. It is state-of-the-art. Um, the product that they're creating is really good. The people at, at, at Pittsburgh Brewing Company are phenomenal. Um, we had an event there and... Um, and a part of the food and beverage network. But what was an interesting dynamic that happened is that um, Scott Baker from Fifth Generation Baker's part of uh, Jenny Lee, right. uh, he was there. And then the, we had another individual that was, uh, uh, that was in the same industry. And they said, you know, we had an ingredient maker that burned down. And we have no idea where to, you know, how to source this ingredient. And they, you know, so that's kind of one of the benefits of a trade network and say, well, I'm buying that ingredient from, I was buying from that same supplier. I've been able to find that ingredient right. over here. And I think that's one of the, that is really, I think, one of the more meaningful elements to a trade network is you're able to lean upon each other as you referenced. Um, so um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for growth within a food and beverage network meet every week and we talk about how to kind of plant ourselves firmly within Western Pennsylvania and then how we can go. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of promise there. So the more people that know about what we're doing, I think the better. Yeah. And I, I think that they don't even think about it as competition. 
even if they're in the same industry, because you help them right now. Now, when you need help down the road, they'll help you back. And so people were not like, well, I'm not telling you. Because they very well could have said, well, I'm not going to tell you where I get the ingredient. It doesn't affect their business. Tell them where you got the ingredient and, they, and they'll do that. But well they said. Would, they would help each other. And I, I enjoy those meetings. Mm-hmm. And I miss the one at the Pittsburgh Brewing. I forget. We were on vacation or something and we missed going to that one. That was, that was good. We, were, we always felt like a little bit of a fish out of water because we're not selling any food. Right. We're not buying any food. Right. We can help you with your labor, but that's about it. No. However, it's a much needed element within the network um, because labor is a challenge right yeah. now. And trying to source uh, individuals that want to do it and then have the talent and the ability to do it. Um, so I think that um, we just talked about that last week, about the challenges of sourcing labor. And we get that request quite a bit. So I think, you know, we, we've got some people in network that are in the banking community. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, well, what do I, why am I in this uh, food and beverage network? They, they play an important role mm-hmm. um, at, uh, not only from a funding standpoint, but, you know, small business loans, um, you know, kind of really charting the path to success that I think most folks don't know how to do that. So offering that level of ex- expertise is well, essential. That's where I learned about the crowdfunding. Yeah, right. And exactly. they do such a good job. They do. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the examples they gave, and it was so easy. And I thought, especially in restaurants, as we always say, it's very emotional. Mm-hmm. So if you bought a little piece of this restaurant, where are you going to go? Like one, the example they gave us is an ice cream store. So if you bought, you know, ten, you gave in ten dollars to that fund or whatever. Where are you going to buy ice cream? You're going to go there where you own a piece of it so that when the loan come, is called in and they're ready to distribute the money back to everybody, you got more money. They could, they could afford to get, pay their loan because you gave them more business. You're going to suggest that? I thought, this is a remarkable idea. Because as they said, most restaurants walk into a bank and say they want to borrow money and the bank's like, no. Correct. If you're successful, we'll give you money. Well. If I was successful, I don't need your money. That's the conundrum. Yeah. It's a high-risk operation. Yeah. So yes. the crowdfunding was wonderful just Great. you know, to put that, that risk out over a thousand people yeah. instead of one bank. And everybody, you know, like they said, if everybody gave $20, then they have enough money to buy the new ice cream machine. That's right. That's and, right. And so a thousand people gave $20. And I like the part that they were even limited. You couldn't, you weren't allowed to give. You weren't allowed to walk in and go, well, I'll give. They didn't want that because that person now felt like they had more say in right. what you were doing. Like, nope, everybody only gave 20 bucks. Yeah. That's all the opinion we want from you is $20 yeah. worth of opinion, not 10,000. Right. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. Yeah, I agree. I, and I, that's why I liked the Fab Network because these people were walking in. I remember this one guy, I don't, remember his name or anything, he was starting a food truck. Mm-hmm. And he basically didn't even know what to ask because he didn't even know what he didn't know. That's right. And all these people just bombarded him with ideas. And the next time he came back, he had, you know, 50% of it figured out. Now he needed the other 50%. That's right. And he was doing well. And he, I think at the time he was doing food trucks and he only wanted to employ people from, that had gotten out of the prison system. That's right. And so he was helping those kinds of people. And he needed to know 
how to train them. Right. Because none of them knew how to cook. That's correct. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah. There's uh, that is it. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's more of that than people know. And, uh, and so I think, uh, I think the food and beverage network and, you know, you may, you maybe think of the uh, Pittsburgh community kitchen cause that's what they do quite a bit down in Hazelwood and what they do. And they're there. And Jennifer Flanagan's a big part of the food and beverage network. And so um, it's almost, I, I wish that, you know, more people knew about the good work that not only that network does, but what's going on in the food industry and, and how it helps people on a lot of levels. So as we said in the very beginning, that's why I think people really like this industry. Mm-hmm. And once they get in it, it's hard to, it's hard to get out of it because it's in your blood. And, uh, something that I've always been passionate about and I've always had a lot of fun in it too. Yeah. Cause everybody talks about the favorite recipe from grandma or right. something like that. And so everybody has a connection to food, mm-hmm. you know, so they do that. Well, I think that we've, we pretty much covered all of it. You, you have taught me so much. I didn't, oh, good. I really didn't understand the food distribution stuff. So now I feel much better about good. it. And I think you probably helped a lot of listeners to understand. I hope so. There's a lot of moving pieces to it. Yeah, there is. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that there's big companies out there, meal size and Mm -hmm. little companies are moving around for us because we get to benefit from eating all this really good food. Absolutely. You're right. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I appreciate it.